Well, please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. It has been a handful of weeks since we have been in our series in the book of Matthew, and we're going to resume uh, our study today, and Lord willing, be able to continue now for a number of uninterrupted weeks, if the Lord wills. And uh, we're going to finish uh, a section we started in terms of John's response to uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then we're going to consider the baptism of Jesus uh, together this morning. Uh, so let's, uh, in order to understand the context and the full passage, let's begin and, and read in verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter together of Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins." But when he, saw of the, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is a joy for us to be gathered as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's certainly a, a 
cold day and, and difficult to gather this morning, and yet it's a, a blessing that we are able to gather freely and safely. We're thankful for the warmth of this building and the, the, the way in which you have provided for us so that we can gather, so we can open up the scriptures unhindered and uninterrupted and seek to learn more about you. Lord, at any moment when we're listening to the Word of God preached, there are temptations to be distracted and to think about other situations or life circumstances. So we would ask for your help in this time, that we would set all distractions aside and understand what the Word says and understand its significance for our lives. And so we need your help and the work of the Spirit for that. And so we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So it was about uh, six or eight years ago, uh, that there was a debate taking place within uh, evangelicalism over the nature of sanctification and how it happens. On one side of the debate was a popular pastor by the name of Tolian Tavigian. He wrote a book called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. And the emphasis of his book and his teaching was that the primary way we grow in our sanctification is by basking in the glories of our justification and then holiness is the the natural byproduct okay so so we grow in awe of our justification and the natural outflow of that is is sanctification or holiness as he would talk in in this view the believer's part in sanctification was more passive than it was active And with this view came the hesitancy on this man's part to preach the the oughts or the commands of Scripture, lest one uh, drift into legalism. In response to this view, Kevin D. Young wrote uh, his own book entitled The Whole in Our Holiness, in which he argued that there are many motivations for sanctification— Uh, and thankfulness and meditating on our justification was just one motivation. And he argued that far from sanctification being a passive process, it was actually an active process that involves the believer's responsible participation. So as this debate was was reaching its peak, uh, as I said, six to eight years ago, I attended a lecture series on this particular, actually it's one lecture on this particular, on this particular debate. Uh, Dr. Mark Snowberger was the lecturer, and in presenting the lecture, he tried to get at what the, what the root issue was in this, in this debate. And he said something, uh, just one line that I, has stuck with me ever since uh, that day, and it's, 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 it's this that he said. He said this, the problem is not an overemphasis on justification, because one can never overemphasize justification. The problem, rather, is an exclusive emphasis on justification to the neglect of sanctification. Now, I thought about that quote, and I've thought about it ever since then. It's an insightful quote, and I think that the quote is actually helpful in in more areas than just this particular debate. Now, it's not my intent to really talk about this sanctification debate, but really to focus in on that particular statement that he made uh, in in, in explaining the the debate. See, in, in seeking to understand the Bible, we can be prone to a particular error. We can be prone to the error of emphasizing one element of truth 
to the neglect of another. And in doing so, we can unknowingly and unintentionally drift into error or lead others into error because of a lack of what we might call theological balance. Now, I remind us of this error as we approach our text this morning because here Jesus is pictured as this polarizing figure who will bring blessing to some and judgment to others. In fact, you see this uh, borne out in verse 12 where he says, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So in this passage, Jesus is, is a polarizing figure who's bringing both blessing and judgment. But it's a popular error in modern Christianity to emphasize one characteristic of Jesus to the neglect of another characteristic and, and unintentionally lead people into a faulty view of Jesus. So this can happen when we emphasize or place exclusive emphasis on the love or the gentleness of Jesus to the neglect of an emphasis on his holiness and justice. Now, is Jesus loving and gentle and gracious? Absolutely. In fact, in, in weeks to come, probably months to come, we'll be in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus' own words are these. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. But what can happen is that some paint Jesus only in terms of gentleness and lowliness, and they mislead people into thinking that that's all Jesus is. And the resulting error is that little is made over personal sin and the coming judgment of Christ on sin and those who persist in their sin, and an exclusive emphasis on the love and the gentleness of Christ to the neglect of Christ's justice leads to error. In fact, it damns many people to hell because they're not properly warned about their sin. Now, we might say the opposite error can occur as well, right? An exclusive emphasis on the judgment of God to the neglect of the gentleness and the love of God, too. Right? This can also lead people to a faulty view of Jesus. It was, it was this view portrayed by the Roman Catholic Church that caused an unconverted Martin Luther to say that at times he hated Jesus. Well, why did he hate Jesus? Well, it was because of a, of a misrepresentation of the character of Jesus. He saw him only as this terrifying judge, but didn't understand the grace and the forgiveness and the gentleness and kindness of Christ. And so we might say that, that much of sound theology is maintaining a, a proper balance in our understanding of the truth. Being careful not to exclusively emphasize one doctrine or one characteristic to the neglect of another related characteristic. So I'm reminded of Exodus 34, 6, and 7, which says, A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, but will by no means clear the guilty. We maintain this balance of, of, of things, and, and we see it paralleled in that verse. Now, the reason I bring your attention to this this morning is for those who want to paint Jesus as only being gentle and loving, it's hard to ignore the plain teaching of, of Matthew chapter 3. 
Okay? He is gentle, he is loving, he is forgiving. But for those who will not repent, he is coming in fierce judgment. And what's interesting about Matthew chapter 3 and, and this, this idea of, of Christ's judgment, this is one of the first descriptions or depictions of Jesus in, in the New Testament. At least as our New Testament is arranged with, with Matthew placed at the beginning of, of the New Testament canon, the introduction to Jesus is he's about to begin his, his earthly ministry, right? Chapters 1 and 2, it's his birth and, and, and the events surrounding his birth. But then he's just about to begin his earthly ministry. And the first thing that's presented to us in terms of Jesus' character and his work and, his, and, his, and, the, and what he's going to do is this idea of Jesus being a farmer with a winnowing fork gathering the repentant into the barn and burning the, the unrepentant with unquenchable fire. That's a really sobering picture of Jesus and one that we would be wise not to overlook and one that, frankly, basically opens the New Testament. That here is Jesus and he's coming with a winnowing fork. Now, it has been a number of weeks since we have been in this particular passage. And so this morning we're, we're picking up with the second half of, of Matthew chapter 3. Um, we've already introduced John the Baptist. And as the chapter continues, we want to continue looking at John the Baptist and, and the words that he says here. And then we'll get to Jesus' baptism as we, uh, as we move into this, uh, to this sermon. But we organized this this chapter in, in really, or John the Baptist and his ministry, in three ways. We said, uh, we, we looked at the man, John the Baptist, uh, we looked at the ministry, John the Baptist, and we looked at the message of John the Baptist. Now, regarding the man, John the Baptist, uh, we said that Matthew does not give a, a ton of information about Jesus. In fact, he simply says this in verse 1, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So it, we, we assume here, and it seems to be the indication, that Matthew's audience already knew who John the Baptist was. And they were familiar with the, his ministry and, and the, the meaning of his ministry. Okay? So then we looked, secondly, at the ministry of John the Baptist. We said that it is one of preparation. So you see this picked up in verse 3. In verse 3, he says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So John was the predicted forerunner. Uh, of whom Isaiah spoke, who would prepare the way for the Messiah to come. And in verses 5 and 6, we see that all of Jerusalem and Judea and the surrounding area of the Jordan River were coming out to John, confessing their sin and being baptized. So John's ministry was very popular and a very public preparation for the coming of Jesus. That was his that was his, his ministry. But lastly, and where we want to continue this morning, is we consider the message of John the Baptist. And we see his message explained here in verse 2. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So John's message is one of repentance in order to receive entrance into the kingdom. An entrance in the kingdom demands a spiritual transformation, is what is what. Uh, is what John the Baptist is saying. In other words, simply being Jewish or having the right ancestry was, was not the, the means by which someone enters into the kingdom. And as the passage continues, this passage or this idea is illustrated for us in verses 7 to 12. So John is preaching and he's baptizing, 
and the Pharisees and the Sadducees show up to inspect the, the, the ministry of, of John. And as they arrive, John welcomes them with a nice stern rebuke in verse 7. You brood of vipers. Maybe even indicating the offspring of Satan in the garden. And he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Which is something of a sarcastic statement because they weren't there to be baptized and they weren't there fleeing the wrath to come. They were merely there to inspect. And before they can give an answer to John, John anticipates their thinking. In verse 9 he says, and do not presume to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. And John says, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. That is, instead of claiming to, to, that their lineage was their grounds for entering the kingdom, John says what they needed, verse 8, was to repent and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, this is where we left off in our last study. And we didn't get to finish John's message to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So before we get to the baptism of Jesus, I want to finish what John has to say to these religious leaders. And the main idea of what John says here is this, that Jesus brings salvation for the repentant and judgment for the unrepentant. Okay, Jesus brings salvation for the repentant and judgment for the unrepentant. In fact, consider with me again verses 11 and 12. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Okay, so as John is rebuking the Pharisees and the Sadducees for rejecting their need for repentance and baptism, John turns his focus to the coming ministry of the Messiah. And in these verses, and particularly verses 11 and 12, John begins to contrast himself with Jesus. And there are two contrasts that he makes here. Hey, look at verses 11 and 12 again. The first is a contrast of degree. He says, Jesus is greater than I am, or the coming Messiah is greater than I am. But then there's a second contrast, and it's one of kind. Jesus brings a different kind of ministry that is contrasted with John the Baptist's ministry. So first, let's, contrast, let's, look, let's note the contrast of degree. John says that the Messiah who is coming after him, and he says this, he is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. See, John properly understood his role in relation to the role in the coming of the Messiah. In fact, if you were to read Luke's account of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3, you would read that the people were in expectation, and they were all questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. And so John has to stand up and, and, and clearly state that, no, 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 I'm not the Christ, but the one coming after me who's coming is greater than I am. He is the one who is the Christ. And, and every encounter with John the Baptist, the Scriptures support this attitude of humility on the part of John. So 
So later in John's ministry, when most of the disciples start going to Jesus, and his, John's remaining disciples are saying, hey, what's going on? Why are they all going over there? John has to say, no, listen, the friend of the bridegroom rejoices when, when, the, when the groom gets, gets the glory. He must increase, and I must decrease. So John states there's a contrast here, and it's one of degree. Jesus, or the coming Messiah, is, is greater. But secondly, there is a contrast of kind. When Jesus came, he would have a different kind of ministry than John. So notice what he says in verse 11. He says this, I baptize you with water for repentance. And at the end of the verse, he says this, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, the question we need to ask here this morning is what John meant when he said that Jesus' baptism would be with the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay, because it's clear in the New Testament what the Scriptures mean when it talks about being baptized by the Holy Spirit. What's not clear in this passage, and as we consider this, this topic, is what it means to be baptized with fire. And so we want to consider that this morning. But let's first consider what it means to be baptized by the Holy Spirit and what John meant when he said, there's coming one who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now, the Holy Spirit, prior to Matthew 3 and prior to John the Baptist ministry, the Holy Spirit was, was already at work in the New Testament. Or, I'm sorry, was already at work in the Old Testament. Okay? It's, it's my understanding that he was regenerating the, the lost individuals. He was indwelling believers he had the work of, as we're going to see in a few minutes, of anointing or, 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 or being upon the individual who was leading the, 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 the kingdom of Israel. Okay? So the Holy Spirit was active and in, in, in working in the Old Testament. But one ministry of the Holy Spirit that did not exist in the Old Testament was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And when we consider the baptism of the Holy Spirit now, in the New Testament, there are three things that we need to, to note. Okay, so when we look at the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, we, we notice, first of all, that it was, it was expected or it was anticipated. Okay, so in other words, it was something that didn't exist in the Old Testament. And when John proclaims it here, and when the, all the gospel writers mention this, they say that it's something that is coming with the coming of the Messiah. So it's something that's spoken of as being in the future, something that's expected or anticipated. It's yet to come. The second thing we know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit was, as we look at the New Testament, it was experienced. So when Jesus ascends into heaven and the Spirit baptism comes upon uh, the believers in Acts, we see a number of places in the book of Acts where the baptism of the Holy Spirit is experienced. So Acts 2, it's experienced on the day of Pentecost. Acts 8, when the Samaritan believers come to faith in Christ, they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 11, when Cornelius, or 10 and 11, when Cornelius uh, is saved, he receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then with the, in, in, in Acts 19, when the believers are, who have only received John's baptism, when they come to full understanding, they receive the, the baptism of the Spirit as well. But what you'll notice as you look at the book of Acts is nowhere does it say, here's what the baptism of the Spirit is, or here's what it means. All it does in Acts is tell us, this is what happened. It's not until we get to 1 Corinthians 12, do we have a clear statement of what the baptism of the Spirit is, or what it means. So we have the baptism of the Spirit is expected, it is experienced, but then thirdly we see that the baptism of the Spirit is explained. 
in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. You don't have to read there, but basically what we see in that passage is that every believer experiences the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And what it is, it's the means by which we are added to or baptized into the New Testament church or Christ's body. Okay, so that's what the baptism of the Spirit is. So John says when Jesus will baptize with the Spirit, this is what he means. He is going to establish the church, and and those who are Spirit-baptized will be added to the church. But the the next question is, well, well, what does John mean when he says the Messiah is going to baptize with the Spirit and with fire? Well, some think that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire is a reference to Pentecost, when tongues of fire came upon the believers there in the upper room and they were, as they were baptized by the Spirit. And this is certainly possible, but it seems better to me to understand this phrase, and fire, as being a reference to the judgment that Jesus brings on the unrepentant. And there are two reasons why I think this is the case. The first reason is the context mentions fire three times. And two of them are most assuredly references to judgment. So look at verses 10 and look at verses 12. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and is thrown into fire. Look again at verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So two times in this immediate context, fire is mentioned, and both of them are references to judgment. So it seems to me that when he says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, that what he's saying is depending on your spiritual condition, you will either receive the baptism of the Spirit or you will eventually receive baptism by fire, which is a form of judgment. The second reason this is the case is because is this. The only time that spirit baptism and fire are connected in the same statement is when judgment is in the context. So there are lots of references to the spirit baptizing and to spirit spirit baptism, but the only places where spirit baptism and fire are connected is when the context of judgment is in view. So, for example, uh, the book of Mark mentions Jesus is going to baptize and and gives the same context of of John saying, you know, the one coming after me is going to baptize you with the Spirit. But in Mark's description of the events of John, no judgment is in view. He just says he's going to baptize you with the Spirit. But when you read Luke's account of John the Baptist in his ministry, and, and, and in there he says he's going to baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. Do you know what the very next verse is in in Luke chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, the very next verse is, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he is going to discern between the righteous and the unrighteous. So when judgment or when the winnowing fork is the following verse, the previous verse is Holy Spirit and fire. Okay, so here's John's point. After me one is coming, and he will mean different things to different people. To the repentant, he will bring the baptism of the Spirit. They will be added to the church, and they will experience all the blessings of salvation. But to those who do not repent of their sin and do not embrace Christ, they will receive the judgment of eternal fire 
for their rebellion against Christ. In fact, this is the point of verse 12 with the, this illustration of the winnowing fork. Now, the picture of a winnowing fork is, is probably not readily available in our imaginations. It's not something we talk about here, but to John's audience, they would have immediately understood the illustration that, G, that John the Baptist was using. So at the time of the harvest, a winnowing fork would be, would be used to, to toss the stalks and heads of grain into the air, usually against a breeze. And the wheat would fall to the ground to be collected, but the chaff would blow away to be collected and burned. And the image and illustration John's giving here, he's saying the Lord of the harvest will collect the grain into his barn, the repentant, but the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire, those who do not repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So this is a very clear statement on the grace and judgment that Jesus Christ brings. In this sense, Jesus is a polarizing character and means different things to different people, that every soul will be judged. And those who have repented of their sin and embraced Christ will be gathered into his presence to experience all the blessings of salvation. But to those of us who have not turned from our sin and believed in Jesus, we will receive eternal condemnation, eternal fire for our sins. So this is what Jesus brings. He brings salvation to the repentant and judgment to the unrepentant. A few weeks ago, I came across a quote from Jim Leland. He was the manager of the Tigers uh, for several years and also with the Florida Marlins and the, and the Pirates as well. Uh, he was a very successful manager and, and, and worked in baseball for, for decades. And he was reflecting on his time managing people and players. And he said this. He said, if you mislead a player, you lose them forever. If you tell them the truth, you lose them for about 24 hours. That was a really interesting statement. In the context of this quote, he's referring to the difficulty of, of addressing challenges and difficulties with, with players um, and how it's hard to tell them that something's wrong with them and the temptation to tell them what they want to hear in order to maintain a good relationship. But if you, if you mislead them like that, then you will lose them for uh, a lifetime, he says. But, but when you tell someone the truth, they might initially be disappointed or upset with you, but over time, it's, it, much of the time, they are thankful that you told them the truth, and they're thankful in the long run. Now, in today's Christianity, we have become fearful of telling people the truth about the, the coming judgment of Jesus. I think we're often controlled by, by the fear of man. We want our message to be accepted, uh, respected. We want to be seen ourselves as, as credible. And in doing so, we often soften the sharp edges of the gospel. We leave out the truths of God's judgment. We speak about the wonderful things Christ can do for your life. And in doing so, we can lose that person for a lifetime. We allow them to continue in their sin unrebuked and unwarned. But if we tell people the truth that Christ brings salvation 
to the repentant and judgment to the unrepentant, it may be that they initially reject us and our message. But by God's grace, some will turn and will say, thank you for telling me the truth. Well, we might lose them initially, but in the long term we win them because we have been people of the truth. And as Christians, we are responsible to be people of the truth to give a clear and entire picture of the coming of Christ and, and what it means for the world. And doing so, we're not more superior or more intelligent. We are just one needy person telling another, another needy person where they can find the cure to their need. And that's our, our duty and responsibility as believers. Now, as the passage continues, we turn our attention now to the baptism of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus is an important event in the life and ministry of Christ. It is so important that all four gospel writers record the baptism of Jesus. In fact, let's read again verses 13 through 17, just so we can remember what's taking place in this context. Then, Matthew says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So as John is baptizing and carrying on his, his ministry, Jesus comes to him and requests or demands that John baptized him. But John's initial response is to decline. Right? You see the words in verse 14? I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Now we need to note that while John knew Jesus and was related to him, he did not yet know that Jesus was the Messiah. Let me say that again. John knew Jesus because they were relatives. But at the moment, John did not know Jesus as the Messiah. Right? So, so Noah read in our scripture reading from John chapter 1, and, and John is recounting the details of Christ's baptism, and he says, he says this in verse 33 of chapter 1. He says, I myself did not know him, talking about Jesus, but he who sent me to baptize, that is God, with water, he said, on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Spirit. And John says, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So prior to baptizing Jesus, John did not know that Jesus was the Messiah. It was not until the Spirit came resting like a dove that John then knew this is the one who was the Messiah. He must have known that Jesus was an upright person from previous interactions, and that's why he said, well, you should be baptizing me, not me baptizing you. You're more upright than I am. 
But it's not until after the baptism of Jesus that John knew Jesus was the one, the Messiah, for whom he was preparing the way. So John declines to, be bapt- or to baptize Jesus. But Jesus says to him in verse 15, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now it's interesting that that phrase is there because all the gospel writers record the baptism of Jesus But Matthew is the only one who tells us why Jesus needed to be baptized. So all the gospel writers tell of this account. But only Matthew records verse 15 where it says, Let it be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now the question is, what does that mean? Well, if you were to read different commentaries, you would get different answers because people have different opinions as to, to what this phrase means. I think uh, one commentator, Craig Blomberg, sums it up best when, when he basically, and most people agree with this, where he says, uh, the, to fulfill all righteousness, that the way he's using that word is, is in terms of obedience. So if you go back to Matthew chapter 1, Joseph was a, an upright man or an obedient man, a righteous man. And in the same sense, Jesus is, is, is being baptized to fulfill all righteousness or obedience. Okay? But he says this, uh, Blomberg says this, to fulfill all righteousness means to complete everything that forms part of a relationship of obedience to God. In so doing, Jesus identifies with and endorses John's ministry as divinely ordained and his message as one to be heeded. All right, so Jesus is, 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 is being baptized to walk in obedience before God, to fulfill all righteousness or obedience, And he is identifying and endorsing John's ministry as being from God. Right? So remember back in, we'll we'll come there eventually, but Matthew chapter 21, uh, it's closer and closer to Jesus' um, death and resurrection, and the triumphal entry has already happened. The cleansing of the temple has already happened. And now they're trying to trick Jesus so they they can kill him. And they come up and they ask him this question. They say, Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? And like, a, like a, a wise individual, Jesus responds to a question with a question. He says, well, if you can answer my question, then I'll answer your question. And what does he say? The baptism of John, was it from God or was it from man? Well, now the religious leaders are in a predicament, right? If they say God, or if they, if they, if they say God, then they have to recognize that Jesus has the authority to do this because John prophesied and predicted the work of Jesus as coming from God. If they say man, they fear the crowds because everybody recognized John as a legitimate prophet. So they say, well, we can't answer. And Jesus says, well, then I won't answer your question. But what Jesus was saying in that passage was that the ministry of John the Baptist, it was from God. It was a ministry of of God. So for Jesus to be baptized by John then was to fulfill a life of obedience to God. Even though Jesus himself didn't need to be baptized or repent of his sins, as everyone else did who came to John for baptism. But there's another reason Jesus needed to be baptized. And that was so that he might be anointed by the Holy Spirit to fulfill all the functions of the Messianic King. Okay? In other words, what's taking place at the baptism of Jesus is that this is Jesus' public anointing 
to be the king of Israel. It's where God recognized him publicly as, as the king. Now, now, how does this unfold? Notice how it unfolds. Okay, the heavens split. The spirit descends like a dove on Jesus. And a voice from heaven cries, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, if you're holding a Bible that has cross-references, and you look at verse 17, I think that's the right verse, right? Verse 17? Yeah. If you look at verse 17, you will see two particular Old Testament cross-references in that passage. One is Psalm 2, verse 7, and the other is Isaiah 42, verse 1. And in the baptism of Jesus, there are a couple of Old Testament concepts about the kingship of Jesus coming together. So in Psalm 2, this is a messianic psalm referring to the coming Messiah as king. And here in Psalm 2-7, Jesus in the coming Messiah is referred to as, as the son. Okay? The other Old Testament reference is, is Isaiah 42, verse 1, which says this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, God says. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, this is another messianic passage, Isaiah 42.1, that speaks about the coming Messiah. And notice two things about Isaiah 42.1 and about the Messiah in this passage. Number one, the spirit comes upon him. Right? He says, I have put my spirit upon this servant, upon this, this, this coming Messiah. And secondly, he says, it is the one in whom God delights. So Isaiah 42.1 again says, um, my soul, this is the one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him. So these two ideas are coming together in the baptism of Jesus. The spirit is coming upon him, and God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am, or with whom I am well pleased. So these Old Testament concepts are, are coming together in the baptism of Jesus as he becomes anointed to be the king. Now, just one note before we move toward a conclusion is what is taking place when the Spirit comes upon Jesus in this passage? Well, this is a work of the Spirit known as theocratic anointing. Now, don't be confused by that term theocratic. It just means God ruled, okay? Israel had a theocratic kingdom or a God-ruled kingdom. And in the Old Testament, the, the, one of the ministries of the Old Testament that existed was where the Spirit came upon the theocratic ruler of the, of the, of the kingdom, or the, the ruler of the God-ruled kingdom of Israel. So in the Old Testament, when different people ruled over the nation of Israel, God's Spirit would come upon them in a special way to enable them for the task. So Moses received this. Um, the, the 70 elders received a portion of this. Joshua received this. The judges received this. But most noticeably, you'll remember that Saul received this. The Holy Spirit received, he came, came upon him. He was able to do tremendous things. But then you'll remember when he disobeyed God, the Spirit left Saul and now empowered David to rule the kingdom. But then you'll remember this, that after David sins with Bathsheba and he confesses and prays in Psalm 51, what does he pray? Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He's not saying, 
that he's going to lose his salvation in Psalm 51. What he's saying is, don't take the theocratic anointing and ability for me to, to rule the kingdom away from me. Okay? So this is what theocratic anointing was in the Old Testament. Now, when we come to the, the baptism of Jesus, what we have is Jesus is the final ruler to receive theocratic anointing. This is where the Spirit comes upon Jesus and declares him the official king of Israel and enables him to perform all the tasks as king. And his baptism was where this publicly took place. So Jesus is receiving the Spirit as the final person to receive the theocratic anointing and as the one who will rule over the kingdom and sit on the throne of David one day. So, this is the ministry of John the Baptist that presents Jesus as king. And it is part of Matthew's continued argument as he writes to his Jewish audience to present Jesus as the coming king promised in the Old Testament. And this is just one sort of excerpt in a, in a long argument that Matthew is making. Okay? But this is what Matthew is doing in, in, in in mentioning the ministry of John the Baptist and displaying Jesus as king. But I think what we notice in this passage is what we've already said, that Jesus is a polarizing figure. In other words, there is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. One either accepts him as Lord and king or rejects him. And in our presentation of Jesus, we need to be careful to present Jesus in all his truth in all, and in a balanced perspective. That he is a gracious and kind Savior to those who will repent. But to those who will not repent, he is holy and just and, and, and will by no means clear the guilty. And we must be careful to present a care, a, 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 an honest and clear presentation of Jesus so that we can truly honor him as king. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're grateful for the passage that uh, unpacks the beauty of our Savior, his humility and willingness to identify with sinners and, and be baptized and to faithfully obey God all the way to the cross. Lord, we're thankful that we have such a wonderful Savior, and even just this morning, have the privilege of, of catching a, a glimpse of, of Him and His coming ministry. It excites us for the promises that are yet unfulfilled when He will come and He will rule and reign on this earth in a kingdom where there will be no sorrow, where there will be complete joy for we will be ruled and reigned in, in peace and justice. So, Lord, fix our eyes and our hearts toward that day and give us the grace to endure any difficulties in this day. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.